Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you sent your Son, the Word, who became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the one and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. With your grace and truth, grant us by your mercies to receive, believe, and live according to your word. Please let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. We ask this in your glorious Son's name, Jesus, who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen. So we will uh, reread our gospel reading here in just a moment. But by way of introduction, I want us to consider the, the transfiguration as more than just something that teaches us about the character and nature of God. It is definitely important for us to understand the character and nature of God, but being image bearers, those that reflect the image of God, God desires, and we see this as illustrated through Jesus Christ as the one to whom we model ourselves after, all the attributes, all of the things that makes God who God is, is something that we are to be reflecting in the world around us. So we're going to read this passage again and then go through it and, and look at what we learn, what we see, and then say, yes, the transfiguration has a call to me to do something. It teaches me to reflect God's glory, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Let us hear God's word from Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Let us read God's word. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces, and they were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. So as we hear God's word, we see in this narrative that it focuses in the beginning 
about six days ago. So we see, if we want to understand this and look at this, we can see that six days ago that Christ, the church, and the cross are revealed. Again, our passage says, now after six days, this begs the question of what happened six days ago. We can look back in chapter 16 and see that in verse 13, it says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I am? The Son of Man I am? Excuse me, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Excuse me. And in this, of course, they respond with a variety. People say this, people say that. They think you're the prophet. They think you're Elijah. They think you're everything, um, but certainly not the Son of God. And then in verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, God has illuminated the disciples, clearly revealing with no doubt that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of the living God. They see that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, beginning with verse 6. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I, this is God speaking, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. You know, here Jesus is the son of man, but what is his purpose? So that the nations may be his inheritance. When we look back at Matthew 16, we see in verse 18, after the the declaration that Jesus is the son of the living God, Jesus responds and says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Like many of the day, the disciples are looking for a king to deliver them from what they believed to be their main obstacle to living a successful, godly life. Their conclusion was not so much about their own sin, but rather their Roman oppressors. They, they also thought that, that their leaders of their church were their oppressors. They too saw that, that the hearers there are, are not leading them rightly. And here they, they are thinking that the way to solve the problems of the world and to solve the issues that keep them from following God is by political means. And then Jesus speaks to his disciples to tell them how deliverance will come. In verse 21, it says this in Matthew 16, From that time... So after they declare that Jesus is the Son of the living God, and after Jesus says he's establishing the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, you're going to do these things. He then says, because you know he's, he's going to take them right out of thinking, you do this through political means. 
It says this in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So he says, nope, that's not how we're going to do this. I'm not going to sit on this throne here. Your greatest obstacle is your sin, and and I need to suffer and die for that. And there is hope, because I will be raised on the third day. And of course, Peter, you know, remember, he was just told, you know, you're part of the church, you're going to be part of the leadership, right? And Peter rises up and says, he rebukes Jesus, oh no, Lord, no! In verse 23... Jesus says this, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. That's a powerful rebuke, isn't it? Especially right after Jesus acknowledges, You got this right. You know who I am. And you're going to be part of the leadership going forward, establishing my kingdom. And then Jesus says to his disciples after he rebukes Jesus, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And in verse 28, if they're not getting it, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So they're in conflict because Jesus is saying, Take your cross, follow me, die. Oh, and by the way... You know, you're going to see the Son of Man. Some of you are going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Right? They're uncertain. Let's be honest. They're uncertain about what this all means. They're saddened because we'll see this later on as we go through the gospel some more. We'll see that they're always jockeying for position. They're always trying to be the greatest in the kingdom. Here, at this point, Jesus' ministry shifts from being one of healing and miracles and raising people from the dead. Jesus has been proclaiming the good news and removing the barriers of drawing near to God. That is to say, all these things that he's doing, healing people, these are the things that in the covenant law, in the Old Testament ceremonial law, kept you from drawing near. Now Jesus focuses and turns to his suffering, death, and resurrection. And of course, all of this is to remove the final barrier of those that the Lord has called. And he's delivering us from our sins. It somewhat looks like Jesus' message has changed from a triumphant message of the coming of the kingdom. Jesus is now focused on what seems to be the tragic message of suffering and death in Jerusalem. Jesus keeps talking about his resurrection, but the disciples don't understand what Jesus is saying. More than this, Jesus is telling them that they will bear a cross as well. Jesus understands that the cross is not the way to death, but it is in fact the way to life. The way of God. The way of Jesus. And the way for us is to give up on our own interests, our own desires, and instead to obey God's will, to die to ourselves, to die to our own self-preserving desires. When we pick up our cross and die, 
we do this to please God. And in doing so, we become salt and light. All the glory that the disciples thought they would share with Christ by his own words seemed to be out of reach by all this talk of the cross, suffering, and death. And of course, the final words of chapter 16 end with the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And here we see this connecting words and in these six days are about the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This, of course, reminds us of the description of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. To what end? Listen, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one, not of many, the one which shall not be destroyed. The vision of Daniel was clear that the Father has given dominion and glory and a kingdom to his Son. The glory is given by the Father to the Son that all peoples, nations, and languages should worship and serve him. Today's gospel reading is an extension of these ideas starting with six days. We know that the culmination of the sixth day of creation is man, his image bearer. The first Adam fails, but in Jesus, the second Adam, Jesus, the Son of Man, has glory. Many people think we are simply seeing Jesus' glory revealed when we look at this passage on the transfiguration. But it is much, much more. Jesus, the second and faithful Adam, is man. The transfiguration is a preview of the glory of the Son of Man that he will show at his coming. But it is not just for him. We need to think of this passage as we consider this, that there is a whole lot going on here. Am I right? The transfiguration shows us that all symbols, types, and shadows are fulfilled in Jesus. In verse 1, in the second half of that verse, it says, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Here on the mountain, these three disciples see Jesus for what he truly is, the eternal Son of the Father. The transfiguration shows the Son of Man sharing his, in his glory with the Father. We see in Psalm 104, verse 1, Bless Yahweh, O my soul, O Yahweh, my God. You are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. So here we see that in this transfiguration, that God, that, that God the Father is sharing glory with the Son, and the Son is sharing glory with the Father. We see additionally in verse 3 here of Matthew 17, that Moses and Elijah appear to them, talking with him. 
And of course, then Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And of course, we see, we know what happens next. There's this great declaration, right? While, while he's thinking about these things, building these tabernacles, which he's thinking, okay, wait a minute, right? The tabernacles of the Old Testament, we built those to be in the clouds, be, to, to, to be up where God is, and we're rejoicing with him. This is about being in glory. And he says, okay, we, we should maybe build something here. We've got to do something. I can't just stand here and watch this. That's a typical man. I can't just stand here and do nothing. Right? But he was well-meaning. But it says that while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Not, not a dark cloud, right? Not a, not a storm cloud, a glorious cloud, a bright cloud. And in that, it says, suddenly that voice came out. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Now, when this happens, the disciples heard it and they fell on their faces and they're afraid. And we're going to talk about this a little more in just a minute, but God the Father declares, this is my son, hear him, right? And remember, Moses and Elijah are there, and all of a sudden, there's no more Moses, there's no more Elijah, there's no more glory cloud, it's just Jesus. Take all this glory, take all the law and the prophets, it's just Jesus. And you and I and those disciples, we need to hear the words of Jesus. And Jesus says, Arise, do not be afraid. And of course, they only see Jesus. This passage is full, as one commentator states, that this passage is a knot intertwined and overlapping all kinds of types from the Old Testament. The mountain is corresponding, first, I think, to the mountain of Eden, the place where God both created the garden and created Adam. Jesus is glorified on the sixth day, just as Adam was created on the sixth day. The cloud overshadows Jesus, just as the Spirit overshadowed all creation in the beginning. After the cloud is gone, they only see Jesus. And when they head down the mountain, they speak about the restoration of all things. That is, the new creation. We also see the mountain of transfiguration as the mountain of Sinai. Remember when Moses goes to the mountain and enters the glory cloud of Yahweh that Moses' face shines so greatly that Israel cannot look at Moses. The disciples see that Moses and Elijah are there talking with Jesus. These men represent all the law and the prophets. In the parallel passage in Luke chapter 9, we know what Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus about. It says this in Luke 9.30, and behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease. Now, that's a bad translation. That word decease there, because they're thinking of the death. So yes, we, it is about the death, but that word decease in Greek is actually exodus. So through the death of Jesus, the exodus of the people of God is going to take place. And see, this exodus, where is it going to happen? It says in Luke 9.30, which Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. These prophets understood that Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy that Moses gave in Deuteronomy 18.15. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from the midst, 
from your brethren. Him you shall fear, according all that you desired of Yahweh God and Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God, nor let me see his great fire anymore, lest I die. Jesus is from among the Israelites. Jesus is the new Moses who leads his people by an exodus from the bondage of sin. We know in Luke 24, 44, that Jesus explains that the law and the prophets and that all the Psalms are about him. One thing here is, remember in this prophecy that, that uh, Moses gives in Deuteronomy 18, they're, they're, they're afraid of the voice of God, they're afraid of the glory cloud, they're afraid of all this. And Moses says, listen, you're right. God's not going to come to you any more like that. Instead, he's going to bring one up from your own people who's going to speak the words of God to you. You see the connection? Moses, Elijah, that all, everything's about him. And now God the Father says, hear Jesus. Jesus is the new high priest in the temple. Remember that the tabernacle and temple are architectural mountains with the most high excuse me, with the most holy place is the highest peak. It's also reflective of the Garden of Eden as the most highly pl- holy place at creation. We see in the transfiguration that Jesus becomes the high priest. When we look at the Old Testament, the high priest is clothed in white and adorned with golden thread and precious stones to look glorious. But on the Day of Atonement, the high priest takes off those glorious robes and wears a simple white garment. Jesus is the great high priest. Now Jesus is fulfilling the law and the prophets. And he is the new and high prophet. Just as the Old Testament speaks, the prophets speak, we should listen to the words of Jesus, who speaks the words of God the Father. John 14.10 tells us this. All of these symbols and types tell us that Jesus is the man who ascends and shares the glory of God. Jesus reveals here the, the Christian, the destiny of the Christian humanity. Not the fallen Adam, but the glorious Adam. You see, we will be conformed to the glory of God and filled with that glory. We can see this in Psalm 67 and Isaiah 11 and Habakkuk chapter 2. Now, of course, the Father, after all of these types and symbols, he says, hear my son and understand. And you say, well, wait a minute, it just says hear my son. Well, when you look at that word here, there is both to hear and then to understand it. God is speaking that. He's revealing and giving them the ability to understand. And he says out of that glory cloud, hear him. The Father speaks and declares that just as the disciples need to hear and follow Moses and the prophets, they must hear and obey Jesus, but not as one who is equal, but as one who is greater than Moses. Jesus speaks the words of life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
You know, Jesus says, leading up to this, that he will suffer, die, and be resurrected and vindicated in glory through that resurrection and through his ascension. When we consider this glory-revealing experience at the transfiguration, it comes on the heels of Jesus making it abundantly clear that he will suffer, die, be resurrected, and glorified. Jesus tells us in John 10 that he willingly laid down his life for us. He pours out himself, and the Father vindicates him by the resurrection and ascension. The Father glorifies Jesus. We see in Ephesians 5 that Jesus has a mission to make his church glorious. So the Father shares his glory with the Son, and the Son shares his glory with the Father. And then Jesus' mission is to share his glory with us, to build us up, to make us glorious. We see in Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. We hear that, we say, okay, i got to die. But for what end? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might do what? Present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So God, through the work of Jesus Christ, is going to transform us. He's going to share his glory, and the, and the Lord is going to work in our lives, removing sin, taking away all of this, sanctifying us, cleansing us of all these things that we have to deal with every day so that we can be glorious. We see that the husband is admonished to be like Jesus and so love his wife so that her end game is to be glorious. But this admonishment to make others glorious flows not just with the husband and wife, but for all of us, children, it includes you, to those among us that are elderly, it includes you, everyone in this room, we are admonished that the glorious work that Christ is doing, the glory he has given us, that he is working in our lives, should flow into all of our relationships. We should be sharing glory like Jesus. We must glorify others. The glory God has bestowed upon us allows us to glorify others without conflicts of interest. Whatever glory that any people have, including you and me, it has come from God. The transfiguration teaches us that Jesus will come to vindicate his people and that our God is a God who shares glory. As one commentator puts it, we tend to think of glory as a zero-sum game, simply that God is glorious and we are not. Unfortunately, we can fall into the idea that to glorify God, we must correspondingly be unglorious. That is to say, okay, all right, I know that I need to empty myself and... And so I have to debase myself and, 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 and thereby give what, what I have back to God, and that's going to make him more glorious. Can we give anything to God to make him more glorious? No. Right? But in the glory that he gives us, 
right? It, it, it all comes from him as he transforms us. God is infinite. He never runs out of glory. He shares it with his son. The son bestows glory upon us. This may seem strange, but consider the glorious light of God in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. How do we turn many to righteousness? We shine bright because of God's glory that he has shared with us. You know, we know that in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So he says, I'm light. If you walk with me, you're going to have light. And not just any kind of light, but the light that gives life. You know, Jesus also tells us that we are light. Remember, we talked about this in Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. A city that is set on a hill, and it cannot be hidden. Why? Because the light is coming out from us. The glorious light that we give is so that others may glorify him. Consider verse 16 of of Matthew chapter 5. After he says, you're the light of the world, he says this, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. And what? Glorify your Father in heaven. The glory that has been bestowed upon us by the work of Christ should be shared to extend God's kingdom. A serious temptation in our daily lives is to seek our own glory so we treat others as our rivals. We speak and act in ways to selfishly glorify ourselves and worse, to deprive others of glory. We can become a glorious people as we share glory. So we talk about all this. So everybody now is the the application part. Children, listen up. Parents, husbands, wives, every person in this room, whatever your connection, we're the body of Christ. Here are a few short admonitions of what this looks like. Husbands and wives are not just teammates trying to work together to achieve their combined duties to get everything accomplished. No, they are to glorify one another. The husband is no more glorified if he belittles or insults his wife. And he does this so that he can be puffed up, a tyrant to raise himself up above his wife that's the way that the world sees glory the husband is glorified as he glorifies his wife when he cares for her and nurtures her and helps her to mature in Christ he loves his wife when he builds her up he himself is glorified when wives don't compete for their husband's role when they are not jealous of that role, but rather they foster their husband's faithful execution of his role. If they are encouraging, if they offer advice and support, and she helps him to be the best husband and father that he can be in Christ Jesus, 
If she glorifies him, then that is how she becomes glorified. She becomes a glory bestower to her husband. Parents are not more glorious than their children because they know more or simply because they're bigger or because they have more life experience. Parents are glorified as they glorify their children. As parents, we should not squash every infraction of the rules or lord our authority over them. Now, I am not saying don't discipline your children. Don't recognize when they're doing things wrong. That's not what I'm saying. That word there was what? Squash them. Don't do that. Instead, parents, think of this. Rather, we are to see our children as persons baptized into Christ and to help them grow in Christ. Lord have mercy if God the Father treated us with the way that we frequently have treated our children and at every small infraction squashed us. The same grace that God has bestowed upon you and the desire of God through the work of Christ to grow you up and to lead you nearer and closer to Him. See your children as gifts that God has given you, loaned to you, so that you may grow them up in Christ, that they may be lifted up, and in turn, the glory that they have learned in Christ, that they have been bestowed through Christ and through your service, they go and glorify God and bestow glory to the world so that God's kingdom may grow, not just in their lives, but in their children's lives and in all those relationships that they have as they grow. We need to see that teaching them and helping them flourish as children of God is the way to glorify children. And then, in fact, we become glorious parents. Children, listen up. I haven't forgot you. When children, you don't simply want to just grudge, be, be oh, i got to obey, obey my parents. Don't be begrudgingly, right? No, obey your parents with joy. Honor your parents in your obedience. When you do this, you are imitating God by glorifying and honoring your parents. And you will become glorious in God's kingdom. It doesn't end there, of course. When we all seek to build up our friends, to guide them into faithfulness, to encourage them and to support them, then we are imitating God who seeks to pour out His glory on us. And that's how we become glorious friends. If you're an employee, you don't become glorious by outperforming the other guy. But instead, you imitate God by honoring your boss and the company with diligence, initiative, agreeableness, and concern for the company's mission and success. If you're an employer or a supervisor, you do not become glorious by amassing wealth at the expense of the customer or other employees. The company doesn't exist to make you wealthy, 
And we, of course, know that's not glorious anyway. That's the way of the world. The company exists to provide a service for others. And you become glorious as you seek to perform the best service that you possibly can and in ways that reflect God's laws and values. You don't become glorious by suppressing your employees or subordinates. You become glorious by seeking to build them up, to mature them and to groom them for more responsibility and a greater contribution to the company and therefore to the people who are served by the company. You know, sometimes we get into our mode, we're doing whatever we're doing in our jobs, and we're just focused on us and our things. Don't lose sight of what God's calling is for you in those relationships. In all these areas and more, we are called to imitate God, and God's very nature is one of glory, and He is glorious because He shares His glory in Himself and with His creation. At the transfiguration, we see a small glimpse of the bestowing and sharing of glory that is a foretaste of the glory that Jesus has now in his resurrection and ascension. The goal of our lives is to imitate Jesus, but it's not just about denying ourselves and following him, but glorifying God and to pour out our love on others, to build up and encourage our friends, our families, and even strangers. We can overemphasize both the emptying of ourselves and the glory that we share in Christ. Don't end up in either ditch. But remember, we are called to pour out our lives for others because Jesus has done this for us. And we can know that we will inherit glory through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. We give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God. We glorify you through Jesus Christ, who at his transfiguration revealed his glory to his disciples, that they might be strengthened to proclaim his cross, death, and resurrection. As you shared your glory with your son, we ask that you transform us to pick up our cross and to follow you, not for our glory, but so that others may see our good works and glorify you. Help us, we pray, to build up our husbands, wives, children, parents, and those to whom you have given us to serve. We laud and magnify your glorious name forever and ever. Amen.